Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, this Lent, we are uh, taking a break from reading Mark's Gospel together, and instead, uh, in these weeks leading up to Holy Week and Easter Sunday, uh, we're talking together about the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus for people like us. These things, his death, his resurrection, um, aren't just things that happened to Jesus a long time ago. We believe that they are really the climax of the, the story of the world. And so, therefore, these things have meaning for you and me today in whatever places we find ourselves. So we're using the book of Romans to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. And this morning, we're going to look again at the beginning of Romans 5. Last week, we talked about the first two verses of Romans 5. And this week, we'll look at verses 3 through 11. Um, But I'll read it all for us. So you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible. Or you can just listen as I read from Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we have been are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now, as we always do, that you would be happy to use this word that we've just read and heard together, that we're going to talk about together, to show us the word uh, incarnate, the one who bears our flesh, who is seated right beside you, praying for people like us right now. Father, show us the grace of Jesus and change us by it. Meet, Meet us in all of the places that we have come from this morning, in all of the weeks and years and months that we have come from, meet particularly those of us who are in the middle of suffering this morning and speak your good news to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, back uh, in early February, I watched a uh, short film by two Swedish filmmakers called Ten Meter Tower. Uh, maybe some of you have seen this too. Uh, it w- wasn't really a documentary. The filmmakers themselves called it a study, and they were really clear uh, about what they wanted to study in making this. This is how they described it. They said, we sought to capture people facing a difficult situation to make a portrait of humans in doubt. So that's what they wanted to do, and here's how they did it. They found a little over 60 people um, who had never 
been on a 10-meter tower. That is, if you don't know, the diving platform that's about 33 feet above the water uh, in a pool. Someone told me in between services, it is the most psychologically devastating height for a human to be at. I don't know if that's always the case, but that was certainly the case in this. And these people um, were paid to participate in the study, which meant that they had to climb up the ladder. They had to walk out to the edge of the platform over the water. The implication was that they would also jump in, but I don't know if that was part of their payment um, for being in the study. And they filmed all of this without any comment, um, using six cameras and a bunch of microphones. And I have to say that it was one of the most mesmerizing, one of the most compelling 16 minutes that I have seen in a long time. I mean, it was just as advertised. People from all walks of life, people of every age, people of every size, um, sometimes alone, sometimes in pairs, staring into the face of fear and completely consumed with doubt. Some of them looked like they were going to be physically ill as they stood up there. Some of them laughed and joked with each other to try to calm themselves down and work up the nerve to jump. Some of them got angry and testy with the people that they were up there with, told them to be quiet. Some of them were simply paralyzed. They just couldn't move. Many of them jumped, and many just turned around and walked back down the ladder to the ground. It was unfiltered humanity. Uh, it was beautiful. I, I felt nervous for them. I laughed with them. I cheered for them. It was an amazing experience. And one of my favorite things about it um, wasn't really explored in the study because it wasn't really the focus of the study, but it was that everyone who jumped, of course, made it into the water, and they were exultant when they came up out of the water, laughing, screaming in joy, joking with their friends. That hard thing had faded quickly away. That, that position of trouble had faded quickly away once they stepped off the platform. And what was left was not doubt, but sheer joy. It was so vivid. And I mention that because that experience forms the backbone of those words that we just read together. That experience is the logic of what Paul means to say to his friends in Rome. You will laugh your head off with joy when you come up out of the water. What Paul is saying to his friends is that their stories and all of the things that are part of their stories, including their suffering, including their doubt, that those stories are part of a bigger story. And that story is heading somewhere good. Your present experience of suffering, your present experience even of doubt, Paul is saying it will absolutely end in joy. In theological shorthand, this is how Paul is going to say that at the very end of Romans 8. This is what he says, those whom God justified, he also glorified. In other words, if God sets you on this journey, if you are on this journey as a follower of Jesus, you can be certain that he will take you to the very good end of this journey. You will laugh your head off with joy when you come up out of the water. And Paul says it just like that. He says it with confidence. 
like it is uh, already a done deal. And honestly, as far as Paul is concerned, it is a done deal because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So for those who experience the pain of suffering, who have experienced suffering, which by my count is every single one of us here this morning, for those of us who doubt, for whatever reason we doubt that God is going to keep with us to the end of this thing, these are good words for us to hear, good words for us to consider. So last week we looked at the first two verses, and if you were here, you might remember that we talked about them like they were the summit of a mountain that Paul and his friends had climbed up to the top of. And from there they could see where they had come from, and they could see where they were, and they could see even where they were headed. That was the the metaphor. In reality, we were talking about them as people. They, from that place, from that summit, could see the kind of people that they had been. And then they could see the kind of people that they had become in the present. And then they could see off in the distance, far off in the horizon, they could see the people that they would one day become. And when we read it, we were right there with them. And this view was absolutely amazing, which makes it a little bit strange from a certain way of looking at things that old Paul breaks the spell by starting to talk about suffering. Right? Why does he break the spell of this beautiful picture of the Christian life by talking about suffering? I honestly don't know what makes Paul bring up suffering as often as he does and in the places where he does. Maybe in this instance he thought that this might be the first objection that somebody has to this beautiful picture of the life of faith that he was painting. Like, you know, Paul, if it's as great as you say it is, why do I suffer? Why are bad things still happening in my life? Maybe that's what triggered it. I don't know. But if you read Paul's letters, you start to realize that he was a guy who thought a lot about suffering. He certainly experienced a lot of suffering in his own life, and he saw a lot of suffering in the people that he was a pastor to. And I think that Paul had absorbed the story of Jesus' life, which had a lot of suffering in it. I think he took seriously Jesus' words about picking up our own crosses So to articulate a Christian vision for life without suffering as a part of it would have smelled like a fraud pretty quick. And that's the truth. That is the truth. If we pretend that living life does not include suffering, then that is just what we're doing. We are pretending. But it's not just that Paul talks about suffering. It is the things that he says about suffering, like here, In verse 3, this is what Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Do we really do that? This is one of those deeply counterintuitive statements that pop up from time to time at the heart of our faith. Jesus says things like this all of the time, like, if you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. And the last are going to be first. And blessed are those who mourn. Right, These kind of statements, along with Paul's statements about the kind of things we do, rejoicing and sufferings, they, they don't sit very well with what we call common sense. As a matter of fact, they do war with common sense. And that's exactly the point. They are, as Paul says to his friends in Corinth, they are 
reflective of the secret and hidden wisdom of God. And so they're worth us paying close attention to. So it's obvious, culturally speaking, we do not rejoice in our suffering. We hate our suffering. We do everything within our power to avoid it. We marshal everything at our disposal to keep it at bay. And when it comes, we scramble to fix it as quickly as we can. And church, I want you to know that as far as that goes, it's okay. Paul isn't a masochist. He isn't saying that we should go out and try to find suffering. And when we find it, we revel in it. He's saying something very different. He's saying that when suffering finds us, We rejoice while we're in it. As we suffer, we also rejoice. And this is where things usually break down, for me at least. And maybe you can relate. Paul isn't super clear about the kind of suffering that he's talking about here. He's just talking about the kind of suffering that comes from living in a world that's broken as a broken person. So I don't know what it is that you are facing or have faced in your life. You know, maybe it is a thing at work. Maybe it is a relational thing with someone you love, with a parent, with a child, with a spouse. Maybe it's something physical in your own body, something physical in the body of someone that you love. I don't know what it is that you have faced or will face or are facing. But I do know that sometimes we feel shame in our suffering. We think that people will look at us and think that we should have done something to avoid it. If only we had been smarter. If only we had been better. If only we had been wiser. And so we, a lot of us hide our suffering from other people because we, we don't want to look weak. And that compounds our misery because then we go through suffering alone. But if we're being honest, we have to admit that it's not just other people that we want to hide our suffering from. We often want to hide our suffering even from our own selves. We medicate ourselves into forgetfulness with pills or with alcohol. We distract ourselves by working a ton or playing a ton. We run to other things that we think will give us relief and they never do. Paul knows all of this stuff, right? There's nothing that's really new about humans responding to suffering. It's nothing that's much different. And so instead, here's what Paul does. He shows us something more and he shows us something better. This is what what he does. He shows us where suffering fits in the story of our lives. And he shows us the kind of people that God makes us into through our suffering. Here's why we rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says. I know it doesn't sound right, but listen, this is why we rejoice in our sufferings. Because first, we know that they produce endurance. Now, some translations of that word come out as patience, but i got to tell you, I'm really fond of the word endurance because of what it connotes in our language. It means that we stay put, fully present, 
in the middle of hard things that we cannot change. That's what endurance is. Staying put, fully present, in the middle of hard things that we cannot change. And I know, you don't have to tell me, I know our culture doesn't teach us to do this. Our culture doesn't encourage us to do this. But this is who we are called to be, church, especially especially when we are in a community of people who are suffering, in our families, in a, in a group of friends, in a church. These are the kind of people that we need all around us. These are the kinds of people that we have been called to be, folks who stay put when it gets super hard. People who are fully present with all of our gifts and all of our loves and all of our talents. People who are fully present in the middle of pain and suffering. In the middle of the mess. If we need a picture for what this kind of person looks like, if we need to catch a vision for someone who endures, then all we need to do is look at the Gospels, right? Jesus, this is the essence of the incarnation. Jesus does not run away from the pain. He does not run away from the shame. He does not run away from the suffering. In fact, he gives everything up gladly in order to be right there, fully present in the middle of the pain and shame and suffering. He was always fully present with clarity and with grace. And church, this is who we follow if we are followers of Jesus. It is that Jesus that we follow. And it's his grace that empowers us to live and to love as he did, as people who endure, as people in whom God is using suffering to grow endurance. And as we stay put in that suffering, fully present in it, fully engaged around it with all that we have and with all that we are, Paul says that this endurance produces character in us. Character. I feel like we've lost a sense for what that word character means. We have lost as a people a sense for what that word even implies. I, I don't know how much we celebrate character. We celebrate athletes. We celebrate pop stars. We celebrate people who make a lot of money. We celebrate those who talk the loudest to us on TV. We celebrate people who have lots of followers on social media. We celebrate those who look the most beautiful to us, those who make us laugh the hardest those who seem to be powerful, we celebrate then the shallow and the minuscule and the cardboard and the fleeting, not character, but get into suffering. Get into suffering for one minute, the real stuff, and it becomes incredibly clear the people that you really want around you, people with character, people who are tried and who are tested, people who are usually unshakable. Someone who meets you in your suffering, not with judgment about it, but in order to give of themselves for you in the middle of suffering. People who are not easily dismayed. Someone in whom the waters of compassion run deep 
someone in whom the waters of love run deep. A sheltering refuge of a woman. A strong tree of a man. I don't know about you, but I want people like that all around me, and I want to be like that to other people. I want us to be that for each other. These are the kinds of people, church, that our broken world needs, and these are the kind of people that God uses our suffering to turn us into, to make us. People with character. This is where suffering fits in the story of our life. And here is where that backbone comes into play. Here's where that sense that Paul has of the true story of the world, the place where this thing is really headed, comes into play. This is where that sense of you you are going to laugh your head off with joy. You're going to scream with joy when you come up out of the water. That's where this comes into play. Because, Paul says, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope, Paul says, does not put us to shame. (laughs) When Paul uses that word, he's calling back to the end of verse 2, which we talked about last week, where Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is the place to which we are headed. That is the people that we are becoming. In shorthand, It's a way of saying that God's people are headed to a future in which they are in God's presence as fully alive and fully human, the way we were always meant to be. That is our hope. And you know what that means? It means suffering is not the end of the story. It is simply part of our story. It is a part of our story that God uses to grow us into the people that we were meant to be. People who endure and people who have character and people who have hope. The kind of people that this world needs in spades. It's who we, church, are called to be. One of my spiritual mentors once said to me, um, probably in the middle of my worst run of suffering in my adult life. She said to me, Aaron, your suffering belongs in your life. And I got to tell you, I, I did not like, I did not like it when she said that. I just wanted my suffering to end. I wanted at least for that suffering to just get turned down a little bit, but you know what? She, she was right. She was right about that for me. She is right about that for us. And you know what that means? That means people like us can reject feeling shame in our suffering. And it means we can stop hiding it from other people. And we can stop trying to hide it from ourselves. And it means that we don't have to have a fake optimism while we're in it or a resigned fatalism while we're in it. We can be people who are patient and people who are enduring and people who have character being formed in us. We can be people who have hope 
even in the midst of our suffering, who can therefore rejoice in our suffering. And in case we needed it, and I think we probably do, Paul gives us a reason to know that we can hope. He tells us, listen, I I know that I've said something amazing, that hope is never going to put you to shame. Here's how you can know for sure that you will never be put to shame in this hope. He says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. I think what Paul is talking about here is the sense, this subjective sense that we get from time to time unexpectedly most of the time that God really does love people like us. (laughs) He really loves a guy like me. He's not talking here about a doctrine to believe in, although it is certainly that. He's talking about an experience of God's love for us. And this happens sometimes. It's like a taste of the feast before it comes. Before you sit down to the feast, you get a little taste of it. Maybe it's happened for you in worship or when you're taking the sacrament or when you hear something true in a sermon. It could just as easily happen in a conversation with a friend through the unassuming love of a child for you, through sharing a great meal, watching a great movie, listening to music that moves you, going out for a run. God comes unbidden to us through stuff like that, and he does it all the time. One time, I had to call someone to apologize for something that I had done wrong against them. And so I called and talked to that person, and they forgave me, and I hung up the phone. And as soon as I hung up the phone, I was flooded with this incredible sense, not of reconciliation with that person, I mean, I was reconciled to that person. But I was flooded with a sense of God's freeing love for a guy like me. (laughs) I, I have no idea why God did that just then. I just know that it happened. I know that it happens for God's people. And Paul's point is that we can be sure that we will not be ashamed in our hope because we are certain that God loves us. We will come up out of the water and we will laugh our heads off with joy because we know it is true that God loves us. In the way that the theologians talk about it, this is Paul's doctrine of assurance. What he is saying is that God's love assures us that our hope is not in vain. And Paul sets it out with logic, starting in verse 6, but I don't want that to fool you into thinking that it's cold or calculating. It's the logic of love. Listen, Paul says, every once in a while, someone will die for a good person or a righteous person. It scarcely happens, but it does happen every once in a while, and you see it from time to time. But what about somebody willingly dying for a bunch of cowards and fakes and liars? What about dying for your enemy? (laughs) What about dying for the person who has tried their worst to hurt you throughout your life? Well, Paul says, that's virtually unheard of. That's extraordinary. That's more than any of us would ever do. And so Paul says, that is it. That is precisely how God shows his love for us while we were still sinners, while we were still 
the cowards and liars and fakes who didn't want to have anything to do with God. He died for us. That is the extraordinary way in which he loves us. He has made us his friends through the death of his son before we wanted anything to do with him. And so this is what Paul says. Listen, if God has done this mysteriously, inscrutably, impossibly unheard of thing, then you can be sure he'll do the easy thing. It's all downhill from there. As Paul says it, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more now, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. God's love for us, shown to us in the death of Jesus, continues to be shown to us now in the resurrection life of Jesus. And that means that suffering is not the whole story. It means that suffering is not the end of the story. It is part of the story. And it is a part that God uses to change us into the people that we were always meant to be. We will not be ashamed in our hope. We will be saved by his life. Let me pray for us. God, help us to be a people who can hear this and believe it. Who can look headlong into our suffering, whatever it is, and know that it is not the end of the story. That it isn't the consuming thing in our life. To know that it is part of the story And it is a part that you are using to change us into the people that you have made us to be. Father, we ask that you would help us in whatever way that you have, whatever means that you have, to be a people who can look at our story as part of this bigger story that will end with this incredible joy. And to live out of that hope in the present. Father, do this for our good and for our healing and for our strengthening. Do this to create patience and endurance and character in us and in turn do it so that we can be those people in this broken world that you have called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.